0: We, we usually do most of the stay in silence just because, especially with a practice like this, it really can help you get a sense of that deepening. So um, anyway, this is a good chance to have a few minutes to say hi to your neighbors. Okay, so um, so what's compelling about this practice? Why concentration meditation? And, and we call it, talk about this as the Samatha practice. So when we're using that term, it's really interchangeable with concentration meditation. A lot of people don't use that term. Um, We, as you heard, we've both practiced a lot of other kinds of practice. And um, when this really became a big part of our um, lives, as we looked into it more and more really after the retreat, and started understanding how does this really fit into the whole scope of our life practice that we're going to be doing until we die. It got more and more compelling the more research we did because we really saw, like in the suttas, if you look at all of the suttas, the Buddha talked about the Samatha practice constantly he talked about it all the time and not only did he talk about it but he continued to practice it even after full enlightenment he didn't only practice Vipassana he practiced Samatha just as rigorously right up until the time of his death so for us it's really you know made us start asking the question about the Buddha doing this and and as a role model Um, is it worthwhile really considering emulating what he did? And if you look at the suttas, he just talks about it over and over and over. When people ask how to practice, a lot lot of times people will think this practice is only for advanced practitioners, but the Buddha started people out here with Anapanasati. That's really what we're going to be focusing on today is mindfulness of breathing. And... um, right up until the moment of his death, what he was doing at the moment of his death when he knew he was dying. wasn't like this happened really suddenly. He, he knew leading up to it that he was dying. He was practicing the jhanas. That is what he was doing. So that seems really compelling to us to think about his life and what he chose to practice and the importance he placed on this. And... You know, even before him, he went and learned this practice from the teachers of the day when he left the palace and decided to become a renunciate. And he looked around and said, okay, who are the best, most advanced people that I can study with? He went to one teacher who taught him the first through seventh jhana, and then another taught him the eighth jhana. And that was who taught him, really. And, you know, maybe he modified the practices some, into what we now know. But in his day, this was the practice that was being done. This was, you know, one of the main meditation practices, and if not the main meditation practice. So he did add to that with Vipassana, and that's really his his gift was to then build on what he learned. But um, he had a great respect for those practices and for the lineage that has been now been going on for probably about 5,000 years of doing this practice. So it predates even the Buddha. If you read something like the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which are really a core um, scripture within the yogic traditions, you can see this being described. It's very easy to see that there's it's really the same practice. And um, it just seems really compelling to us that what drew people to the mystery of the human experience of, you know, sort of where does consciousness come from and what happens to it after death? And to really be able to know that directly through practices like this, this is, in our view, one of the reasons why this practice has endured for 5,000 years. And, you know, there aren't that many things that have endured in humanity that long. And this is one of them. So we find that pretty compelling.
1: It's pretty interesting also that here there's this meditation practice that, as Tina said, has been around for at least 5,000 years. And as sophisticated and as technologically advanced as we are, our consciousness still works with this practice. We haven't outgrown this in some ways. So it's pretty fascinating to see uh, so there's some other reasons that we think are compelling to do this practice. One of the uh, most important is uh, the Samatha practice is, uh, is can be translated as tranquility or serenity. And uh, of course there's a benefit today. We have so much activity, we have so much electronic gizmos that we're attached to that we don't really have a lot of time where we're just quiet and we're just Uh, with ourselves. And so this is a practice that cultivates that kind of quality. But also the serenity, tranquility, the peacefulness is really important in terms of our own spiritual development. Because with that there's a kind of softening that happens when we're with that peacefulness. Our consciousness relaxes. The way we take ourselves to be relaxes. So all these uh, all these aspects of us soften a little bit so they become a little bit more permeable. So it really can help us in lots of other ways, and uh, we're also developing concentration. So with that increased skill set of concentration meditation, we see in our own lives and in our students' lives that people can then take this to their other practice areas. And we get emails and comments on this regularly of people coming to a retreat here or elsewhere and finding the Vipassana the, the practice or the Tibetan practice to really have a lot more depth for them because they bring the concentration to it. So it has a good application in whatever else you're doing in your life. Uh, in addition, in this practice territory, the Buddha called purification of mind was the area. And it really does that. Whatever you, however you define mind, there's a way that it gets purified, both from the tranquility, the softening, and also from the concentration. There's a way that uh, our mind gets more refined. We start putting down things that are unnecessary and are habituated only. Uh, so there's a whole way we start getting uh, more in contact with a pure sense of who we are. And, and also we begin to see our relationship to things like the hindrances in Buddhism, the resistances that are part of our system. We see those more clearly. And also there's um, the benefit by relaxing and relaxing some of the self-images. We also have what we call the thinning of the me. So our sense of self becomes more permeable, more relaxed, so it's not as rigidly held by us. So we get to see a little bit bigger vantage point of who we are, and so that can be quite helpful.
0: So to situate this within, then, the practices of Theravadan Buddhism, which is what's practiced at Spirit Rock for the most part, um, this is a Theravadan institution. Um, there's three stages of the practice. Mm-hmm. Sila, Samato, which we're doing today, and Vipassana. So just to give you a sense of where this fits in with those. Sila is the first practice, or the foundational practice. And a lot of times, this gets translated into ethics, which we don't really, we feel that it's more useful to hold Um, the practice of Sila as like a wholesomeness, a wholesomeness of living where in our lives we're trying to be really congruent with what we know in our inner life, that that gets manifested outwardly. So it's a way of really being more and more congruent with that over time so that we're we're not having regrets and we're not... um, you know, coming to the practice where now we're just running over all the things we should have done or shouldn't have done as um, something that kind of keeps us away from deepening into ourselves. And also as a way of understanding that the oneness that is really part of what we can be in contact when we deepen beyond the personality there's a way that really being in touch with that can lead us to want to be more wholesome in how we engage in our lives, to not do harm. So this is really the practice of Sila, It's not just about sort of following certain rules. It's really about like we undertake this regularly where we look at our lives and where can we be more congruent and where do we wanna sort of up our um, commitment level. And we've done a number of things that we'll talk about later. At the end of the day, when we talk about a daily practice, um, but it's it's an important component, not just about following, say, the precepts, but really about bringing consciousness to that part of to our whole life off the cushion. And then samatha, which is what we're teaching today, and this is the serenity and concentration component of the practice. Um, we got an email from Spirit Rock a couple of days ago saying that they're sending out some, some material on the Noble Eightfold Path and wanted to use something from our book on right concentration or wise concentration. So you can see this kind of built into a lot of parts of the Buddhist teaching. Um, Stephen talked about how Samatha is often referred to as purification of mind, and so really what's happening here is that the mind stream itself is getting purified so that there's less attachment to the personality, to our stories, to our habitual ways of thinking. And with that purified mind stream, we can then turn that towards something like Vipassana or other practices where Vipassana is often also translated as purification of view. So. What that's pointing to is the view of reality that um, can be experienced in a more fundamental way without the veils of the personality that are normally part of our everyday experience. So to, to bring a mind stream that isn't purified and try to do a practice that's about purification of view, we're bringing a mind stream to that that has veils over it. And so this is why the Buddha really encouraged people to do the samatha practice as a way of purifying the mind stream and also um, having the possibility of contact with our deeper nature that can really allow for that, um, that thinning of the me that we, we talked, that Stephen talked about and we'll talk about later.
1: So we're going to start unpacking a little bit what, what is concentration? And the way that we frame this practice, which we think is how it was intended, was there's two benefits that we see as practitioners, we meaning all of us. And one of them is the transformational aspects. And as um, we mentioned, by doing this practice with the concentration and by being in touch with the tranquility, serenity, there's a way that our the way we take ourselves to be, the sense of ourself begins to soften and become more permeable and also there's there's qualities of that or aspects of that we see we can put down we don't need anymore so this begins a a cycle where we can begin to transform who we are and more importantly who we take ourselves to be so that's uh, really important and the other aspect of this practice that's important is is the transcendent qualities as tina was just mentioning as we're settling here as we're concentrating Part of what's happening is we're orienting ourselves towards the mystery, towards our our deeper nature. So we can talk about that as being the transcendent quality. So simultaneously, these are going on within the practice. So it has a lot of richness to it. So really, this is a practice of present moment awareness. We're really trying to orient ourselves to this breath right now. Because this is where the practice unfolds. This is where every practice unfolds. And a lot of meditation practices have a lot of supports to to really allow us to land in this moment. So by doing a breath-by-breath meditation, it helps us do that. And this uh, being a concentration practice, we're focusing on the breath, which is our meditative object, to the exclusion of everything else. So if you're used to, to having a practice that goes to whatever is predominant, we're asking you not to do that today. To so just focus on the breath, and we're focusing on a, in a very particular place, which is between the nostrils and the upper lip. And you can think about this much like going to the gym if you have not been for a while. You go and you start off reasonably, you find some of the lighter weights and you try those out. And you want to build the muscle with the light weights before you go to the heavier weights and on and on. So we're starting off just each breath. Every breath, are, are you here? Are you with the breath? And if you're not, you bring yourself back with gentleness and kindness. So um, with, with following the breath, or being with the breath here at the Anapana spot, we call it, um, we're not following the breath into the body, into the nose and into the belly and, and chest. Uh, we're not following it away from the body. So some of you will have meditative experience of one or both of those. and again, we're asking you not not to follow it anywhere to just stay allow the awareness to rest on the breath here.
0: Just for today, I mean we're not saying you don't that there isn't value in Vipassana and other practices that are different, but just in this practice, that's one of the differences.
1: So one of the metaphors we use for this and I, I realize this is a metaphor we're going maybe gonna have to modify at some point. But it's the toll taker metaphor. So, <laughs> yeah, course,
0: what's happened on the bridge where you can't use the We're getting so
1: it? automated, there may not be toll takers <laughs> at some point. So, Anyway, but it's the, we're like the toll taker, meaning we're in the booth and we're focusing, meaning right here in the Anapana region, and we're waiting for the breath to pass, like the toll taker waits for the cars. And the toll taker doesn't go, leave the booth, doesn't go out and look for cars, and likewise they don't turn away from their little window that's that's the function that's the job so in the same way today we're asking you to just allow your awareness to rest in this one territory to the best that you can and just be with each breath as each breath comes up uh, into that area So, today uh, as Tina was saying we will invite you to put aside whatever else you know what other practices you know and it's very easy for us, particularly in the Bay Area, we have so much exposure to practices, to do a sort of a, a blending of practices. We know we're really good at this one practice, so I'll really get going, get a nice head of steam on that one, and then I'll just kind of jump over here to this one. And it, it doesn't quite work that way. It's a really great idea, but this is a practice that has to build sort of from, from zero. So you really have to just start, and if it's difficult at first, then it is, and that's part of what's, what's happening, what's unfolding. And probably the most common question we get, and we checked it out with the, our teacher, the Sai and he's, to, he's told us this, this is the, um, the most common question he gets also, and that is, I can't feel my breath. So you're in this area, and there's just no activity as far as you can tell. And people say, well, what do I do? And the advice across the board is, wait a little longer. It's kind of like our toll taker, you know, at the window, no cars. What do I do? Well, you keep waiting at the window. Because as concentration develops, and as settling takes place, there will become awareness of your breathing. And we've seen this categorically. So just have confidence, have patience, uh, stay with it and it will relax and you will have contact with your breath there.
0: Part of what builds the concentration and builds that, that muscle that we're creating of the concentration is the fact that it's kind of subtle. When Mahasi Sayadaw really shifted people over in the Vipassana to the belly, one of the reasons he did that was because pretty much everybody can feel the breath of the belly. It's, if you're breathing, you can probably feel it. So this is a little bit more subtle object, and that's part of what actually um, accelerates the <laughs> concentration deepening. So then what what is concentration? Since this is concentration meditation, how how is this held within um, Buddhism and within this practice, and, and what are we really talking about? The word concentration, like a number of the, the technical terms that we'll go over today, um, is a word that we use in everyday language, and that's a little bit unfortunate because... Um, there can be connotations with the word concentration that have to do with kind of efforting and striving, and you know, I'm in really heavy traffic, I better concentrate, and, and um, as a kid, you know, doing homework, I've, I have gotta concentrate on this. There's, there can be sort of a tone of really efforting and of striving. So we're asking you to just put that part of the connotations of the word concentration aside. And really what concentration is when it comes to this practice is a unification of mind. So it's really the mind stream coming together. This is part of the benefit of having this one object of meditation, the breath in this area that we're just coming to over and over. What happens is we start being able to see the things that take us away and to decondition that. So in a lot of ways, this is we're creating a new software program for our consciousness, really, by turning away from the habituated ways that we um, go back to our story that most of the time are really unconscious. They're underneath our, our conscious awareness most of the time. And in meditation, they become conscious because we're not just going there. So this is really what's building the muscle. So as we're doing that, it's like this consciousness that's Out that we need to have out to live our lives and respond to emails and do work and all of these other things, it just starts coming together in a way that the consciousness becomes more unified. And that makes some things possible that aren't possible with our normal awareness. So um, there's three levels of concentration. I'll talk about each one, momentary access and full absorption, which is jhana. So, and two of these are available even in momentary concentration practices like Vipassana. So any kind of, any meditation practice we're doing is going to build concentration. It's just that with momentary practices where the object may be changing, then it's capped out and absorption isn't possible. And that's what this gives us that's um, different than what happens in Vipassana. Later we'll talk about kind of how do the two relate to each other in terms of what's being cultivated, because important things are being cultivated in Vipassana too. So the first level then is momentary concentration, and sometimes this is also called um, preparatory concentration, because we're preparing our mindstream to deepen. And here we're finding that we're with the object, we may have moments with the breath, and then we're off and we're thinking. you know, we're getting distracted, and then we we'll come back, and then we're with it for more moments. So moment to moment, we're finding that we're more with the breath, but it's still not consistent. And that's momentary concentration. It's a higher level than what we'd have just in our normal, everyday thinking mind, but it's the, it's the first level. Then the second level is access concentration, and this also is sometimes called neighborhood concentration because it's in the neighborhood of jhana, but it's not actually a full jhana absorption. And access concentration has a really big range. So at the the lower end of the range, we may be able to be with our object of meditation, in this case the breath, for maybe five minutes without really substantially going off and getting lost in a train of thought. So, you know, this is something that the low level of access concentration is something people could experience maybe today or maybe at a, you know, when you're meditating at home. It's reasonable to think that's possible. But then as that deepens, the very high end of the range um, starts there's other phenomena that start manifesting that um, we'll talk about this afternoon and here we could be with the object the breath in this case for up to maybe 30 minutes or even longer to where we're really not going off of the breath hardly at all so there's a whole territory in between those two places where that unification of mind is happening. And um, a lot of times we'll use the metaphor of a flashlight. So for momentary concentration, we have one of those camping flashlights that can turn into a lantern, so instead of it going in one direction, you pull it up and the light's kind of going everywhere. That's more like momentary concentration. Then you push it down... Access, you you got your beam pointing in one direction, pointing towards the breath. So this is really our awareness being directed towards our object and having more and more consistency as we're deconditioning the things that take us off. We're basically doing something to actively counteract our current programming. So we're laying down a new software program every time that we turn away from whatever that thing is that's taking us off. And this is the benefit of something like retreats. We really get to see those patterns really clearly. And we can see then how they affect our lives a lot more clearly because it gets really crystal clear that it's just different versions of the same pattern over and over again. So this is really, you know, as we're building this muscle, we're challenging that pattern. So a lot of times people think, well, I'm, I'm not meditating because I keep finding that I'm thinking. Well, this is where the muscle is getting built. Every time you come back, that muscle is getting built and you're doing something. You're challenging your existing programming. So this is really what's happening in this momentary and access concentration territory. Then there's this line, this really... You know, we'll see this with people on retreat where there's a line of access concentration that is so deep that you may not even be having thoughts. And it's pretty pleasant. It's pretty amazing, actually. And the hindrances have dropped. So this is one of the things that happens. The hindrances drop, and what's called the jhana factors that we'll talk about later start increasing. And then at some point that we can't make happen At first, it's impossible to make jhana arise, but what happens is basically our consciousness becomes absorbed into um, the object, and all of the hindrances are completely at bay, and so this is where high access concentration becomes the full jhana absorption. And in that, so really, so how do we differentiate this? And we find that there's a lot of confusion where people may have high access concentration and have thought that it was jhana. But a jhana is a non-dual state. So what this means is that at that point, the sense of the subject, like I'm a subject and I have an object, which is the breath, that collapses. So basically... What happens there is the sense of a separate me is temporarily gone. And this is really the profundity of, and this is just first jhana. We aren't even talking about what happens to our consciousness in the higher level jhanas. So even first jhana, even a few seconds of first jhana is a glimpse into what it's like to be free from the me. So that's you know that's pretty profound, and that's a big threshold. It may not, in terms of the amount of concentration required, it's not that big of a leap. But in terms of what it does to be free from uh, the sense of the me, that's really the profundity of the jhana arising. And you know there are different definitions of um, jhana, and this is you know pow out. We are teaching in his lineage. And you may hear other presentations of the jhanas in different lineages. And some of them, there's thinking in jhana. And this has been debated by the scholars for probably about 2,500 years since the Buddha was around. And there is an agreement. But in, you know, Pawak is extremely well-respected. He's been a scholar. He's been a monk for 70 years. He's won awards in Burma for his scholarship. He uses both the suttas and the, and the Abhidhamma and the Visuddhimagga for his understanding of what is actually, what was intended by the Buddha. And um, so in this presentation there isn't thinking because with that there can be, this is where more of a sense of the me arises. So jhana being a non-dual state is one of the qualifiers of this understanding of what a full jhana absorption is. So just to be clear, you know, it's taken us a lot of years to figure out how to talk about this in a way that kind of um, makes it clear what's happening there and why um, why it does something to our consciousness, even though, you know, once we're back in access concentration, there's the me. There's a way where we're
1: changed by that. Can can I add one thing to that? Yeah. Um, Tina mentioned this about the the sense of self, about being non-dual, so the sense of self is not present. And another way to think of this or consider it is all the ways that we self-reference, all the ways we know ourselves through our thinking, through our body-felt sensation, our body-boundaries, all of that is absent, and yet there's still awareness. So it's not an unconscious state. Right. So there's something deeply profound about having an awareness and knowing there's a particular awareness that's your awareness. It's not my awareness or Tina's awareness, and yet all of the self-referencing is absent. So it's, it's really quite a revolutionary experience to realize, number one, you're not dead, and number two, there's an awareness that isn't dependent on all the sense of self.
0: Right, so so this would then be like, now we have a flashlight, we've, you know, some of the camping flashlights, you can turn it and the beam gets really, really intensified. This is the laser beam. And when we were writing our book and Shambhala was, you know, editing it, they said to us, what's laser-like awareness? They wanted us to describe that because, of course, you know, we had experienced it. So we did some research on lasers. <laughs> actual lasers, and lasers, we actually had a quantum physicist in one of our retreats, and he was like, yeah, that's right. So we were really glad. Anyway, lasers are, they're light, and they're so intense that they can cut metal. So this is really, this is what's happening to your consciousness as the unification of minds happen. It cuts through our normal perception of what we are and of reality, in a way that isn't accessible to the everyday mind. And this is really the power of the concentration. Imagine bringing that to our understanding of reality. This is what's happening. Um, so there, we should say there are non-dual awareness is available without the concentration. So like in Zen, that's a practice that actually the word Zen came from the word jhana came from the word Chan, that came from Jhana. Most people, it's been lost to history. But within one of the Zen traditions, they've, you know, tracked that back. Um, They just went straight for the non-dual state and let go of all the practices. So there are, you know, Zen sort of going for having that that non-dual awareness just happen spontaneously (laughs) through koans and and a lot of the non-dual teachers who Adyashanti who teaches at Spirit Rock, others are going straight for that. The difference and one of the benefits we see of doing a practice where the concentration builds to that possibility is that it's more repeatable. Whereas in other practices it's more serendipitous for that possibility to happen and there's also can be a lot more stability where We'll talk about purification of mind, but the purification of mind that happens in that high axis or in jhana is so um, intense that it really transforms our consciousness in a way that is profound. Questions? Yeah, so what questions do you have about what we've talked about? In the back. Oh, and we do have a mic, so oh, yes. please wait for that so we can get it on the recording. And so we can hear you as well. Yes.
1: Hi. Uh, thanks a lot for being here first. Um, having only about three years into uh, practicing mindfulness meditation, vispana, vispana, um, what is the key difference between how thoughts arising are handled between mindfulness and concentration, uh, which we're learning today, meditation? Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Could everyone hear the question? Great, okay. Do you want okay. me to take that? Yeah. Sure. So, um So in Vipassana, this is one of the key differences... Um, I mean, in some ways it's not that different, but in other ways it can be very different depending on what you're doing with the thoughts in Vipassana. In this practice, really what we're doing is we're, we're cultivating a disinterest in our story. So when we're turning away, we're deconditioning the compulsive quality of just going to whatever it is that's taking us off of the breath. And you know, again, if we can do this without self-judgment, that's really great, that if you're finding you're off the breath, there's no reason to beat yourself up about it. Just come back to the breath. You know. So here, we're, the fact that we're just coming back to the breath every single time is creating that real muscle where when we're out in life, we're not as compulsive about going into these things. In Vipassana, there, you might do that, too. Or there are times like, say, you're noticing you have a pattern of planning, planning, planning. You're just constantly going off, and you're, or you're rehearsing something, or you're having a fantasy, or you know one of the many patterns that we all have. You might name that. You might note what it is. And maybe you even feel un- the, how unpleasant it is. So you would go, you might go into it more. You'd have more investigation. So this is really one of the big differences in vipassana. There's investigation, whereas in this practice, uh, and the investigation tends to. This is part of why vipassana is a momentary concentration pro- practice because the object isn't stable. It's changing. That really, the object is the present moment but the contents can change. In this practice, the contents really don't change, so there's a settling. There's a simplicity that allows for more of the resting as well as the deepening of the concentration. Does that make sense? It is, that's one of the key differences between the two practices is the investigation or not.
1: And one thing to be said, if you do find today that you're off the breath and you bring your awareness back and there is judgment. Don't add judgment to the judgment. <laughs> so everyone's going to go off. Just bring yourself back as kindly as you can and continue. Because you don't want to keep, the Buddha talked about the two arrows, the, the first arrow and then the second arrow is the commentary or the judgment. So let's not add third and fourth arrows if we can. So kindness to yourself is important. Go ahead, sir. Um. You guys seem like very experienced practitioners, and obviously, because you guys are leading. So, I'm, I'm curious of when you guys start our next meditation, um, how busy and how distracted you guys experience your minds to be after so much practice and months of, of retreats and trainings and writing books about it? How, how peaceful can you guys get immediately? And and how, I guess, that's that's my question. How peaceful can we get? <laughs> I'd say about a sixty-eight. <laughs> uh, it, it, it depends. I, th- I think one of the big differences I'd say is that even if our mind is busy, we're not necessarily engaged in it. So it's sort of like we can have thunder outside in the sky. We don't have to go watch it and participate in it. So that's really one of the big one of the big secrets people learn is you can. You can stay with the, the breath and create a kind of neutrality about whatever else is going on that's not the breath.
0: Mm-hmm. But the idea that we just immediately don't have thoughts, that's not really what happens. It's, I mean, sometimes there aren't thoughts, but other times, like Steven says, there's, it's like there becomes a place of awareness that becomes extremely stable that isn't identified, you know, whereas I think earlier in my years of practice, I'd go out and I'd sort of get really hooked into the thoughts. Now sometimes there aren't thoughts or sometimes there are thoughts but they feel far away. And this, this we see this happens to people on retreats, where over time people will experience that the, the thought is like over here really quiet. And so even though it may happen because of just, you know, we respond to emails and do all those things, too. um, It takes, this is, I think, one of the things about really any meditation, but especially concentration. When you're throwing rocks in that pond, the waves ripple out. And it just takes a certain amount for that pond to still down. You know, and this is really one of the, With concentration meditation, that pond can get really, really still. But if we've been engaged in a lot of mental activity, it just takes some time. And that's one of the beauties of a day long like this is that we have a day to um, have more time than we might.
1: And, And also it's important not to hold the expectation that the thoughts have to stop for the meditation to be successful or beneficial. So it's it's sort of like if there's thoughts there, there's thoughts there. We we tell people on retreat, don't play with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Meaning they can be there, but if you go and engage them, and wow, how fun these are, and we follow it and <laughs> you add more, then this is really where you're you're creating problems for yourself. But the fact they're they're just there is not not terribly. Uh, it doesn't have to be a distraction. I guess I'll say that.
0: This is one of the real beauties is that. Um, I guess, you know, this can be possible in daily practice to see what's it doing as I'm going to that thing. What's it doing? Is it a fantasy so now it's more interesting? I'm kind of self-entertaining? Or is it I'm planning because there's some anxiety I don't want to actually be with? Or is it just a habit? You know, and we can kind of see, have more understanding of um, why why we engage it. And then to have compassion for that, really.
1: Right next to you there.
0: Yeah. I I have a question um, if you could comment on this letting go of the self in relationship to preparing for death and that ultimate letting go. If you could comment.
1: And and if the
0: question makes sense to you. Yeah.
1: Sure, it makes sense. It's a big question. question. It's a big question. Well, I, I think with practice, a lot, a lot of practices, actually meditative practices, there's ways that we are relaxing our grip on who we are, uh, and I think that's in common. Um, in this practice, we're doing it in a very specific way, so it's a little bit easier to see that's happening. And really, it's it's luckily we do a kind of titration where we sometimes the, the thoughts will slow or we'll have gaps and we can have a reaction to it of, wow, that's really great, or oh my God. You know? mm-hmm. So there can be these different kinds yeah. of reactions. But because we're titrating, because we're kind of moving back and forth, there's a way it isn't too much. And we learn to uh, recognize the stillness, recognize the silence, and be comfortable with that. You know, perhaps at some point there can be the realization you are the silence, the stillness, but that may not happen. But the point is it, we start learning it and getting acclimated to it um, in such a way that there's an identity, it's not quite the right word, but there's a a, a perception, there's a you know, you never lose the particular location of your awareness uh, except in certain practices at certain points. So there's still a sense of a vantage point, um, we could say. and but but the rest of it, the the physicality, the mentality, that, that can be where we have no contact with that, or it's so far away we, we're indifferent to it or neutral to it. So I think there is a preparation for death, and, and I think throughout our meditative career, there's many places we can have existential contraction. We can feel like we're getting too close to death in, because there's a certain belief that if we lose track of our body or our mind, that is going to be death. So so part of the meditative journey is... is experiencing that in small doses that we can learn some stability and then perhaps at the time of death there can be a transition that's aware and smooth and we open to ourselves.
0: Yeah, I would just add that one of the things that happens to a lot of people doing this practice, especially doing it intensively, is is, um, some degree of loss of awareness of the body and that can happen in other meditation practices too, but it happens more in this um, because we're really orienting towards the mystery. We're not sort of, it's not a body-based practice. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a great deconditioning of our attachment of identifying ourselves as the body. So it's really a great, and it's kind of disturbing to some people to have that happen which is part of what's getting purified is our identification as a body. I'm a body. And now when the body isn't here, then what? You know, I mean, it's not the same as death, but it it loosens that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And then also, we talked about the transformational and the transcendent. As we're having deeper and deeper contact with the transcendent, with what we are that isn't this, me that will die that we know will die there can be more peace with the fact that that will happen because there's some sense I mean you know we don't really know what's going to happen when we die some people may think there's rebirth some may not be sure we can't really prove what's going to happen but there can be more comfort with the possibility that there is awareness outside of the body.
1: And you can think about it too, that one of the things we're doing is we're really adding a kind of self-definition here. We we are relaxing the normal one and we're adding one or or exploring one, which is who are we without self-referencing. So you can think about it that way rather than a loss, there's a gain here. Anybody else? Um, I'm curious if you are looking at this also, you know, just throughout the day in the marketplace, just, you know, is there a lot of emphasis or just a daily, you know, moment to moment, just emphasis on this?
0: I mean, obviously there's the meditation, but off the cushion. I mean, I, I, I hear that, mm-hmm. and I'm just curious,
1: just kind of put more of awareness on that in this question.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there, this practice, we have lots of people who do this practice, who do it as a daily practice, who aren't interested in retreat, and who want to do it as a daily practice only. And that, it's wonderful for that because, um, you know, there's actually, at some point, we'll look into all the research that's being done on um, ADD and on lack of, you know, with our devices and looking at them hundred times a day and other things that are really creating a fragmentation of consciousness in a certain way. So there's a way where this can be a practice that really um, offsets some of our some of the developments that have happened in modern society um, to where it's a great daily practice to bring in that sense of settling the serenity as well as the ability to stay with something that we need to do for our work to read a book to you know do a work project that really we have to focus on for hours at a time maybe that um, the research shows that that's getting really fragmented and that people's capacities are have actually gone down over the years and so this is you know something very practical that can offset what's happened in our modern societies. And, and so I don't know if that we'll we'll have a whole section that where we talk about daily practice at the end of the day, and,
1: and we see um, for ourselves and, and for students that this also becomes a touchstone practice, where if in fact you're in a stressful environment, stressful period, people will start using things like when they're waiting at traffic lights or in the grocery store or for an elevator, mm-hmm. they'll just come back and they'll just rest here, they'll rest on the breath for a short time, and even that will end up just having a physiological effect but they'll just have a really moment of relaxation or collection and so that becomes helpful too but that's a daily practice benefit so
0: a question about uh, integrating meditation with a creative sort of uh, you know work Uh, what I found is I when I meditate that's when all the best ideas come up. <laughs> and setting those aside and moving on is really hard. And I know that's just ego talking, but um, when, how do you integrate, and maybe it's doing it different ways at different times, but how do you integrate using meditation to, to assist in the creative process?
1: Well, you have sort of two questions. One, yeah. one is, what do you do about the good ideas that come up? and and for some people uh, a lot of people can can relax and not get distracted by those and for some people it's really a problem and so for some some of those people we might suggest before you meditate to sit down and write down whatever you need to write down and then stop do the meditation and then at the end if you want to write down but to stop the meditation and do writing really can encourage a lot of thinking so it's kind of doing a the opposite uh, of that. And certainly with creativity, uh, virtually all, all meditation people find to be helpful for creativity. Um, I, I think in some ways the, this one in particular would be helpful because both the relaxation, tranquility quality, as, as well as the collection of the, the awareness, um, both are helpful to creative, creative projects.
0: I'll often find that those ideas will still be there when I finish the meditation. So I mean I think part of it is developing a trust that what's emerging from maybe a reservoir of creativity that's underneath our normal consciousness will—it's um, still our consciousness that's there that generated that idea. So I mean really the personality will use just about anything to get you to not do this, yeah. <laughs> and it, that's a it's really very good one. Too. Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah, the there? trust. It's not going away. It's just... Yeah, because it was your consciousness that generated that, and your, you know that isn't gone at the end of the meditation. Yeah, one back there, and then we'll come up here next.
1: Uh, I've read your book, and thank you very much for formulating all of that. It's very clear, and I really appreciate it. I know that you learned the jhanas in a two-month retreat. And, uh, but you're teaching in seven-day retreats and 14-day retreats. Um, How are you going to impart this knowledge in in that short time when you learned it in two months?
0: Yeah, so what we did on the two months, we completed the entire Samatha path. So, we're not saying that's likely for a lot of people to do. But um, the purification of mind aspect of the practice, which we really feel is the most important aspect of the practice, this deconditioning, first of all, doesn't require jhana to arise. It's just like Vipassana. It's no different. If we evaluated Vipassana based on having cessation and stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, which is kind of the fruition in, in Vipassana, There'd be a much there'd be a very small percentage of the total vipassana practitioners in the world who've had that fruition come up. And yet there are huge benefits to vipassana, even if that never happens. So the same thing is true with this practice: that there's a whole lot that's happening that's extremely beneficial as a daily practice in a one-week, in a two-week, we just taught our first month-long. But I mean, we actually have um, someone here who's been a student of ours for a lot of years and done a lot of short and medium and long retreats. So the practice itself isn't that complicated. Really, the instruction, the really simple instruction that I gave, will give it more instruction, but that's really the whole practice. I mean, the side owls instruction is focus here. That's it, that, two words. Really, and that, I mean, we could, we've thought about, well, maybe we should go the day long and just say that
1: and then meditate the whole
0: day. So, you know, you don't need, you don't need to know all the rest of it, really.
1: For the I'm, practice to develop, you don't yeah, need
0: it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the rest of it is helpful because then people know how to sort of track what's happening and work with it skillfully and all of that. But what we will teach in this day long, you could do the practice just knowing that.
1: But but what Tina's is alluding to is what well then what what keeps all of us from just doing this incredible deep dive today? Well, guess what? It's you.
0: <laughs> it's
1: it's our own our own sense of self, our own structuring, our own uh, compulsion around our own thinking, our assertion of ourself. It's our fears. It's our excitement. It's it's all of that that you know, resistance. That's what keeps people from developing. So. You know, you, we all work with it when it's the right time, when, it's, when the maturity is fine to be with it, to put it down temporarily, and it takes what it takes. You know, we're all, and, and luckily this is one where nothing gets forced. It's done in a very ripening, slowly the pot is heating up into boiling. But you get to take the lid off as often as you want. But if you leave the <laughs> lid on, then it's going to develop in a little quicker way.
0: And really, this is true of any meditation practice. I mean, for it to really deepen to the point of um, really digesting a lot of those personality structures that keep us kind of fixed in the, in the me, in the ego, it just takes time. It takes a lifetime. It takes multiple lifetimes. This is not a, you know, any spiritual practice really, it's not a quick you know, beeline to the end point. And so, this is, you know, that's true of this too. Yeah, and we can really do a lot of good. Like, you know, the Buddha talked about one drop many times. You know, if you're doing a daily practice, it, you may not, you may even be going, am I, you know, is anything happening? But like for, for me and for us, we did daily practice before we started going to retreats for years. And that, in my opinion, for myself, this is part of why when I started doing retreats, I can start seeing the effect of, you know, one drop of water hitting a rock can create gorges and you know, erode mountains. And that's kind of like what's happening when we are consistently doing practice.
1: Let's take one is more it? question. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Even in your prior comment regarding uh, uh, the death separating from death, what did you mean by self-realization in that? You made a comment regarding self-realization and the separation from that.
1: Hmm, interesting comment, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I, so certainly within Buddhism, there's lots of realizations possible. And there certainly is a way that what's personal about us or what's individual about us gets more refined, transforms, and also we can our awareness can merge with, penetrate the mystery to various places and deeper places. so I, I think it's when i when we use the term realization, there's something about a deep experience and the awareness of the deep experience, so it's like it's not just happening, but there's a kind of um, knowing that's happening, too. And uh, I won't say too much more, but I think there's, within the... our addressing the issue of our own death is fundamentally a motivator for many people into the spiritual path. So I think for all of us, we're wondering about that, and can that be different than simply just having an extinguishment here?
0: Yeah, and we should say also that even though we we teach within the Theravadan lineage and this is true of a lot of Vipassana teachers and Theravadan teachers, we teach with a Mahayana um, understanding of Buddha nature which isn't really in the Theravadan and you'll hear us talking about our deeper nature, true nature. So part of realization you know in the Theravadan there's four stages of enlightenment and technically those would be the stages of realization that happen all the way up to the highest possible realization, which is extremely rare. You know, I mean, a few of the people out in that meditation hut may have attained that, and that's, you know. But there are realizations that can shift us really outside of an identification from the personality in a way that doesn't go back. And so that is the kind of realization that kind of, it, it sort of knocks the ego off its foundation in a way that is... Permanent. Yeah, that it may not be full enlightenment, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a way that, it, it's a development that is, um, that the awareness doesn't go back. You know, up until that point, the awareness may go back or may go back part way. Mm-hmm.
1: But, but I think what Tina's pointing to also is even if there is the movement of ego after an experience like that, there's a, a way from the realization that it isn't believed. So it's still functioning, right. but it's sort of, it, it's it's like... like you know I, it's not I, true. I, I know yeah. this is a movie, it's not reality, even though right. I'm, I'm I may in the be, movie.
0: I may be operating from it because those, those structures of consciousness sort of are needed to have a human experience. I mean, so far, we don't know of any teacher, Buddhist, or otherwise, that came into adulthood without, or at least came into, you know, some people, it happened early. But an ego forming is part of the human experience. And so then there's the deconstructing of that. You have to have one before you get rid of it. Well, it's for, self-re- well, for yeah. self-reflective consciousness to happen That's part of what happens, and then there's the possibility of going beyond that to where um, it's not necessary to have that anymore.
1: So we're going to take a a 15-minute break here. Uh, This will be a silent break. Now, this is an interesting time because we've meditated and we've been with the breath here in the Anapana region, and so what we're going to invite you to do is to stay with the breath in the Anapana region as you're moving around. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the retreats, we really encourage people...
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.